Section 1 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy, Chapter 21. Swedish Charles and Tsar Peter. There were at this time two European sovereigns, either of whom might, were he disposed to intervene on the one side or the other of the great struggle then going on in Europe, have exercised a serious influence on the fortunes of the war. These sovereigns were Charles Twelfth of Sweden and Peter the Great of Russia. Neither Sweden nor Russia had any particular interest in the conflict one way or the other. The keenest observer of European politics could hardly have ventured to say at the opening of the war whether the inclinations of Charles Twelfth or of Peter the Great might or might not have led him to this side rather than to that. But then both these rulers had already shown themselves to be possessed by such an adventurous temper and by such an ambition for extended dominion and influence that it would hardly be possible to count on their patient neutrality under all the conditions of the struggle. The war had not gone on for very long before it became evident that it was destined to bring about some material changes in the territorial system of Europe, and at any moment, therefore, new conditions might arise which could be well calculated to inspire a man like Charles or a man like Peter with the hope of obtaining some sudden and substantial increase to his dominion if he were to lend his military support to the arms of the Allies or to the arms of France. The whole territorial system of the continent on its western side seemed likely to be cast first into confusion and then into reconstruction by the process of events. New divisions of territory were already beginning to be laid out, new states were claiming recognition, new titles for new sovereignties were in process of creation, and an ambitious, adventurous, ruling outsider might at any moment see good hope of some great reward for his direct intervention on either side. Sweden and Russia were alike outsiders, so far as the causes of the war were concerned, but how long would either remain an outsider if tempted to come in? Long before the war had come to a close, and even before the secret negotiations for terms of peaceful settlement had begun, the English government had made efforts to secure, if not the cooperation, yet at least the benevolent neutrality of Peter the Great and of Charles Twelfth. Russia was then only beginning to make herself known as a power in Europe. The policy of Peter the Great had seemed to be directed above all things to the internal organization and the economic strengthening of his country, to her improvement in all the industrial and mechanical arts, and to promoting whatever trade and commerce could bring out and employ the natural resources of the country. 
that Peter had in his own mind some ambitions and some projects for the expansion of Russia's territorial domain and for the strengthening of his empire so as to make it formidable in war as well as in peace, there cannot be the slightest question. But thus far he had shown no inclination to mix himself up with the interests and the quarrels of states which had no direct concern in Russian affairs. When the alliance with Germany and Holland was in process of formation, it did not occur to the English government that Peter would be likely to take any part in such a federation, or that his act of cooperation could be of great value to the Allies. But it had always been thought desirable for England to keep on good terms with the Russian ruler. Peter was a great admirer of Marlborough's military genius, and he sent to Marlborough a Russian decoration of the highest order, which was acknowledged by the English commander in the letter written for him, as we may well believe, the epistle being all in grandiloquent Latin. It was addressed to Serenissimo ac Potentissimo Magno Domino Zari, ac Magno Duci Petro Alexeiowitz, and much more to the same effect, in profuse acknowledgment of Peter's title to the world's homage and reverence. Burton remarks that the letter was written with the grandiloquent superfluity of courtesies and titles that renders the recent use of the Latin language in diplomacy so bewildering a contrast to its severe simplicity in its classic days. At present, the states of Europe do not feel bound to transact their diplomatic correspondence in that Latin which Caesar and Cicero knew not how to write, and which we may take it for granted Peter the Great knew not how to read. Marlborough had more direct dealings with Charles the Twelfth, whose cooperation, if it could be obtained, was considered by the English government much more important than that of Peter. Charles had been a disturbing influence throughout a great part of the European continent since his succession to the throne of Sweden, and he was looked upon as a man who might easily be prevailed upon to take an active and important share in any dazzling enterprise which seemed to promise military glory. At a very critical period in the war, Marlborough, whose presence it might have been thought could ill be spared from the field of action, was sent on a special mission to Charles with the real, though not the avowed, object of securing, if possible, the cooperation or at all events the neutrality of the Swedish sovereign. In a letter which Marlborough wrote to Harley, he noted his understanding of the mission entrusted to him as an effort to secure the friendship of Charles on account of the great advantage the Allies may reap from him or the damage he may do us. In another letter, Marlborough tells Harley all about his first audience of Swedish Charles. This morning, at ten o'clock, I had an audience of the king, at which I delivered the queen's and the prince's letters. It lasted till dinner and was afterwards renewed for a considerable time. The king expressed great tenderness and respect for Her Majesty, as well as friendship for His Royal Highness, 
and seeming to be very well inclined to the interest of the Allies, so that hitherto I have had good reason to hope my journey may have all the success Her Majesty and the public expect from it. Marlborough further mentions that he was accompanied by an interpreter during his audience with the king, though I always expressed myself in French, which the king understood for the most part himself. Marlborough appears to have delivered, after the fashion of the time, quite a florid and pompous little discourse to Charles when presenting him with Queen Anne's letter. I present to your majesty, he said, a letter not from the chancery, but from the heart of the queen my mistress, and written with her own hand. Had not her sex prevented it, she would have crossed the sea to see a prince admired by the whole universe. I am in this particular more happy than the queen, and I wish I could serve some campaign under so great a general as your majesty, that I might learn what I yet want to know in the art of war. There were many difficulties, however, in the way of any cordial political agreement between the representative of England and the King of Sweden. Charles, as usual, had his mind filled with all sorts of schemes for securing his crown, extending his territory, and obtaining triumphs over his foreign enemies, and at the same time the one public purpose which then especially occupied his attention was to obtain full religious liberty for Protestant communities in all parts of Europe. Marlborough himself would no doubt have been inclined to favor all these latter projects, but when he remembered that England was engaged in arranging the succession to the throne of a Catholic kingdom, he felt bound to deal very cautiously with any plans or proposals which must bring up in a new form the perplexing religious difficulty. Nothing of any definite nature came from the personal interchange of complimentary speeches and political discussions between the two great soldiers who had so much in common on subjects of military interest. After Marlborough's return to England, he wrote to the British resident at the court of Sweden, thanking him for the constant account he had given of his negotiations with the Swedish sovereign. I see, with a great deal of concern, he wrote, how obstinately the King of Sweden insists upon the article of religion. These proceedings cannot but tend to the greatest advantage of our common enemy at this juncture, and will be so far from advancing the Protestant religion in general that it must, of course, be a great prejudice to it and will hinder anything we might do in favor of it at a general peace. These comments coming from Marlborough are characteristic alike of the times and of the man. Marlborough's sympathies would naturally go with the cause of the Protestant communities who suffered from religious intolerance and oppression, but he was essentially a man of the world and his enthusiasm for any particular form of faith was never likely to carry him into even a momentary forgetfulness of the political and military difficulties which might be created by the display of too great fervor for the general principles of religious liberty. They are characteristic also of the times, 
for we find that every state in Europe was quite ready to make use of the religious question when its use could be turned to the disadvantage of the enemy, and equally anxious to keep it out of sight when its obtrusion might tend to embarrass the state itself. Louis the Fourteenth persecuted the Huguenots, but professed much concern at the intolerance which the English government displayed toward the fellow religionists of the exiled Stuarts. England welcomed on her battlefields and in her commercial and industrial life the help of the banished Huguenots, and was herself, meantime, actively engaged in oppressing the Catholics of Ireland. Statesmanship, then, had not risen to the height of accepting the doctrine of religious freedom as a common and equitable principle. Each state regarded as religious persecution that very policy in her neighbor, which she insisted on as the just maintenance of religion in her own case. But at the same time, the statesmen of every country felt themselves perfectly free to let the true religion take care of itself in any instances where an untimely or inconvenient championship of its cause might have interfered with projects of a more practical and worldly order. Charles XII, therefore, was able to obtain from Marlborough but little support in his schemes for the protection of the Protestant communities, and the Allies did not gain much direct advantage from the negotiations carried on for them by England. The Allies had before long good reason to know that Charles was not likely to disturb the movements of the alliance by any interposition of his own. The king's mind was bent on other projects. Those projects, Marlborough, during his conversations with Charles, found it easy to penetrate. Voltaire, in his Life of Charles Twelfth gives an interesting and vivid description of the manner in which Marlborough came to understand that the one dominant passion in Charles's mind just then was his desire to throw himself into fierce antagonism with the sovereign of Russia. When Marlborough mentioned to Charles the name of the Tsar, he saw, Voltaire tells us, that the eyes of the king lighted up at the mere sound of the name, he saw, too, that a map of Russia lay always on the table of the room where he conversed with Charles, and it needed nothing more to enable him to judge that the veritable design of the King of Sweden and his sole ambition were to dethrone the Tsar after the King of Poland. He left Charles Twelfth to his natural inclinings, and satisfied with having penetrated them, he made no proposition to him. Voltaire is always anxious in his life of Charles to give his readers precise authority for every statement he makes, and he informs us that all the particulars which he has given concerning the conversations between King Charles and Marlborough have been confirmed to me by Madame the Duchess of Marlborough, his widow still living. There are few chapters in the history of that age more interesting, more curious, more picturesque in the true sense than that which illustrates the meeting of these two great soldiers, so much akin and congenial in military genius, so unlike in the capacity for the practical business of war, the one filled only by the glamour of his own personal ambitions and projects, the other 
quietly resolved to learn all he could and to give out in return as little as possible of the policy and purposes which his own government had at heart. The passages in which Voltaire describes the meetings and the exchange of ideas, so far as it could be called an exchange of ideas, where so cautious a man as Marlborough made one of the figures, is well worthy of further quotation. The King of Sweden, Voltaire tells us, received at that time in his camp the ambassadors of almost all the princes of Christianity. Some came to supplicate him to quit the territories of the empire. The others would have much desired that he should turn his arms against the emperor. The rumor even was spread abroad everywhere that he was about to join with France in order to bear down the house of Austria. Then we come to Marlborough's part in the negotiations. Among all these ambassadors came the famous John, Duke of Marlborough, on behalf of Anne, Queen of Great Britain, that man who never besieged a town which he did not take, or begin a battle which he did not gain, was at St. James an adroit courtier, in Parliament a leader of a party, in foreign countries the most skillful negotiator of his age. He had done as much harm to France by his intellect as by his arms. The secretary to the States General, M. Fagel, a man of great merit, has said that more than once the States General, having resolved to oppose some measure which the Duke of Marlborough was expected to propose to them, the Duke arrived, spoke to them in French, a language in which he expressed himself very badly, and persuaded them all to accept his suggestions. Voltaire adds that Lord Bolingbroke himself has confirmed me as to the accuracy of these statements. It will be remembered that Voltaire, at a period somewhat later than that which we are now describing, spent some years in England. He was always getting into trouble with the authorities in France, had been twice thrown into the Bastille, and on the second occasion was released only on the condition that he should take himself off to England. During his period of exile, he passed his life very pleasantly and made the acquaintance of many among the most distinguished English men and women then living. Bolingbroke became one of his friends, and by Bolingbroke he was introduced to Pope, and became a familiar figure among Pope's set in the famous villa at Twickenham. He came into association with Peterborough and Chesterfield, with Young, Thompson, and Gay, was welcomed by the Duchess of Marlborough, and dedicated his poem, The Henriade, to Queen Caroline, who received the compliment most graciously. We can easily understand, therefore, how Voltaire came to be able to confirm so many of his historical statements by the authority of English men and women who were in a position to give him authentic confirmation. We return to Voltaire's appreciation of Marlborough. Voltaire observes that Marlborough sustained with Prince Eugène the companion of his victories and with Heinsius the grand pensionary of Holland, all the weight of the enterprises of the Allies against France. He knew that Charles was embittered against the empire, 
and against the emperor, that he was solicited secretly by the French, and that if the Swedish conqueror should embrace the cause of Louis the Fourteenth, the Allies would be oppressed by such a strength. It is true that Charles had given his word not to mix himself up in any way with the war of Louis the Fourteenth against the Allies, but the Duke of Marlborough did not believe that there could be a prince so completely a slave to his word as not to sacrifice it to his own greatness and his own interest. He set out from The Hague with the purpose of sounding the intentions of the King of Sweden. Monsieur Fabrice, who was then with Charles Twelfth, has assured me that the Duke of Marlborough, on arriving, addressed himself secretly not to the Count Piper, first minister, but to the Baron de Gortz, who is beginning to share with Piper the confidence of the king. He even arrived in the carriage of that baron at the quarters of Charles Twelfth, and there was a marked coldness between him and the Chancellor Piper. Presented to Piper with Robinson, the representative of England, he spoke to the king in French, he told him that he should esteem himself happy to be able to learn under his orders all that he did not know of the art of war. The king replied to this compliment by no civility, and appeared to forget that it was Marlborough who was speaking to him. I know even that he found that the great man was dressed in a manner somewhat too elegant and had too little the air of a soldier. The conversation was fatiguing, and general. Charles Twelfth expressed himself in Swedish, and Robinson serving as an interpreter. Marlborough, who was never in any haste to make his propositions, and who had by long habitude acquired the art of thoroughly understanding men, and of penetrating the relations which exist between their most secret thoughts and their actions, their gestures, their discourses, studied the king most attentively. Then follows the passage to which we have already referred, telling how Marlborough read in a glance of the king's eyes his determination to assail the emperor of Russia, and how Marlborough went away well content with the conviction that the Allies had just then nothing to fear from Charles Twelfth. Voltaire adds some characteristic observations which are worthy of quotation, if only because of the rather lurid light they throw on the code of political morality supposed to prevail even among ministers of state at that time. As few negotiations finish without money, and even ministers of state are sometimes seen, who sell the hatred or the favor of their master, it was believed throughout all Europe that the Duke of Marlborough had succeeded with the King of Sweden by giving with that object a great sum of money to Count Piper, and the memory of that Swedish statesman has remained tarnished by that report up to this day. Voltaire, however, is inclined to be charitable. For myself, who have gone back as far as it would be possible to the source of that report, I know that Piper did receive a present, mediocre in its amount, from the emperor through the hands of the Count of Ratislav, with the consent of the king his master, and nothing from the Duke of Marlborough. The position of Peter the Great was one which caused considerable anxiety to the Allies during the earlier stages of these negotiations. 
times had greatly changed with the Russian sovereign since the days when Marlborough had seen him in a Dutch dockyard dressed in the dress of a common seaman and studying the practical art of building ships. He was at last coming to be recognized as one of the established sovereigns of Europe. For a long time he had been treated by Western diplomacy merely as the Duke of Moscovy, and when the original Grand Alliance was in process of formation, the thought had not come into the minds of English or of German statesmen that he could possibly be regarded as a fitting personage to take part in such a federation. Since those days, however, Peter had asserted and established his position and had for some time been admitted to the honor of representation by ambassadors at the courts of the great European powers. During the earlier stages of the Russian sovereign's advancement to his dignity, a mishap had befallen his representative at the English court, which caused an immense sensation, brought about a dispute between Peter and the English government, and actually threatened an outbreak of war between England and Russia. The story, although at one time it seemed destined to have a very serious conclusion, has a good deal of the comical and almost of the farcical about it. Even an international war could hardly have elevated the episode, which was the original cause of controversy to anything like the dignity of history. In 1708, the ambassador to England of the Russian sovereign was about to leave London and return to his native country. It so happened that the Russian ambassador, like many other statesmen of the time, had a way of running into debt and putting off as long as possible any satisfactory arrangement with his creditors. He had bought a large quantity of lace and other goods from certain London tradesmen living in the regent of Covent Garden, and these worthy traders, when they heard that he was about to leave the English capital and return to his native land, seemed to have come to the conclusion, after a consultation among themselves, that the diplomatic representative of Peter the Great had no other purpose than to abscond without paying his just debts. The tradesmen took measures accordingly, and the ambassador was arrested in one of the streets of London by a party of men who were, no doubt, duly authorized by a legal warrant to commit an absconding debtor to prison. As everybody knows, the law at that time and down to a period much later than the days of Mr. Pickwick enabled a creditor to consign his debtor to a prison cell for an indefinite time, or at least until the legal claim and the charges for costs were fully liquidated but at the period when the Russian ambassador was stopped in the London street, it happened that the metropolis was still overrun by those roistering bands of Mohawks who have been described in a former chapter. The Russian ambassador apparently thought that he understood what Thackeray in one of his ballads described as the ways of this wicked town, and he took the officers of the law for mere street ruffians bent on robbing or otherwise while treating him. He offered a vigorous resistance, but the officers of the law were too strong for him. He was overpowered, made captive, and carried off in custody to a sort of intermediate station as a preliminary to his incarceration in an ordinary cell. The story spread like wildfire over all that part of the town, and before long an English nobleman who knew the Russian ambassador came to his relief, 
accompanied by a well-known and substantial London tradesman, and the two, by their joint influence, succeeded in bailing out the foreign captive of English law. Then, as if to make the matter more complex and more comical than before, it came to be known that the Russian ambassador had actually made full arrangement for the payment of all his debts before his departure from London. Here, then, was indeed an international grievance of a very serious order. The Russian ambassador peremptorily demanded that the English government should visit with exemplary punishment the minions of the law who had dared, in defiance of all the comedy of nations and the rules of diplomacy, to arrest and capture a representative of a foreign sovereign. From the language used by the ambassador himself, and by other foreign diplomatists who sympathized with him, it seemed as if the scaffold, or at very least the pillory, could alone be the fitting doom of the misguided men who had thus insulted the ruler of a great dominion in the person of his representative. Some of the offending minions of the law were temporarily committed to prison, while the weighty question was under official discussion, although it does not seem that any reasonable fault could be found with the men who merely executed, in the best way they could, the legal warrant with which they had been entrusted. The whole subject was discussed with much anxiety by the Queen and her Privy Council at several meetings. The trouble was that it did not seem as if any breach of English law or even of international usage had been committed. Queen Anne was deeply troubled by the affair and was most anxious that everything possible should be done to appease the wounded pride of the ambassador. But then, although it was quite clear that the person of a foreign ambassador should be held sacred from interference or molestation, yet it was not altogether so certain that the immunity extended far enough to secure a foreign ambassador against being compelled to pay his just debts by the ordinary process of civil law. The question was surrounded by perplexing troubles, one of which was the great difficulty of explaining to such a sovereign as Peter the Great the fact that Queen Anne had no power to overrule or suspend by her own decree the action of the laws which dealt with the arrangements between debtor and creditor. To make matters worse, the Russian ambassador flourished in the faces of the British statesmen a letter from the Tsar himself, in which Peter demanded that the offended dignity of Russia should be at once conciliated by the doom of death to the offenders. What was to be done? Was there to be a war with Russia, or were British officers of the law to be sent to the scaffold because they had done what it was part of their legal business to do? The matter seemed to Peter to involve no particular difficulty, for if he felt anxious to gratify any demand from the Queen of England, he could have ordered the instant execution of a Russian or a number of Russians without anyone to say him nay, and he probably could not understand why the great Queen of England should not be equally obliging with a number of her subjects. In order to show that something was being done, the government directed that the men who had captured the Russian ambassador should be prosecuted in due form before the court of Queen's Bench, and Chief Justice Holt, one of the greatest lawyers of his time or of any time, had the whole case brought before him. 
All this had much the appearance of a mere performance for stage effect, seeing that nobody could possibly have expected a judge like Chief Justice Holt to countenance any straining of the law in order to oblige any number of imperial or royal personages, or even to evade the chance of an international war. The trial dragged on for a long time, but it ended in nothing, and meanwhile the Queen and her advisers were naturally anxious to show that the whole business had given them much cause for regret, and that it was not their inclination to sanction the slightest want of deference to the dignity of the Russian sovereign and his representative. The Queen's advisers at last hit upon the idea of preparing and carrying through an Act of Parliament, the preamble of which could contain a public expression of regret for the whole incident, a disclaimer of any intention to disregard the dignity of an ambassador, and could introduce fitting clauses to guard against such inconvenient accidents in the future. There was much discussion among the ambassadors and other foreign representatives in London as to the terms of the preamble and the clauses of the measure itself. The measure was termed an act for preserving the privileges of ambassadors and other public ministers of foreign princes and foreign states, and the preamble of the bill was itself an elaborate expression of regret for the insult offered to the Russian ambassador, a disclaimer of all intention to interfere with the recognized privileges of the diplomatic fraternity, and a declaration that measures must be adopted for the prevention of such irregularities in the future. The preamble was, in fact, the whole point of the story, and the Act did nothing more than to put on record the parliamentary recognition of the privileges extended by international courtesy and convenience to the persons of those who represent in London the authority and dignity of foreign states. No harm of any kind was done by this measure, and a magnificently emblazoned and bound copy of it was presented with due ceremonial to the offended Tsar. Nothing in particular came of the whole episode, but Burton tells us that Peter was not altogether pacified in his temper, even by the solemn parliamentary homage which was paid to his sovereign dignity. Burton gives an amusing account of one illustration of the Tsar's still abiding dissatisfaction. Two young Russians, visiting London and claiming the title of prince, were received at the palace with great hospitality as royal persons. That they were in some measure related to the royal family seems certain. Peter, however, proclaimed loudly that they had no right to compromise him by accepting courtesies from the sovereign of Britain. At no period, therefore, during the progress of the war was there much chance for any friendly negotiations between Great Britain and the court of Russia. Peter had other schemes and projects to occupy his attention, and he did not concern himself much with the war that was going on between the Allies and Louis Fourteenth. The object of Great Britain, throughout the latter negotiations for the restoration of peace, went no further than a general effort to keep the Tsar from any active interference with the policy of the Allies, and in these negotiations Marlborough took a frequent part. This history has little more to do with the career of the Tsar. No other European sovereign of his time 
accomplished anything like the work achieved by Peter in the extension of his dominions and the strengthening of his power. He found Russia a country almost entirely landlocked, so far as his European territory was concerned. But it was his great ambition and his firm determination to create for her a way to the sea, and he set the policy going, which was destined before long to accomplish this object. He found Russia a semi-barbarous and in almost every sense an oriental power, and he succeeded in establishing her firmly as a recognized European dominion, admitted on equal terms to the position of European sovereignty. Peter's reign was indeed a despotism of the most thoroughly oriental character, but unlike all other oriental despots, he had a keen eye to the advantages of European civilization, and he understood as hardly any other European sovereign of his time could have done how to build and consolidate the fabric of national greatness. From the opening of his career, he had no antiquated prejudices to set him against new systems, and everything in Western civilization was so new to him that his mind had a free choice for the selection of whatever seemed most suitable for his purpose to imitate and adopt. He created the Russia of modern days as distinctly as the French Revolution had created Republican France. His empire is only yet in its beginning, but we can hardly doubt that it is destined to be one of the greatest influences of the coming time. His personal character was disfigured by many evil qualities and stained by many a vice, but he must ever take his place among the founders of great empires. End of section 1